good to see everybody. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I was saying I'm going to do a, a, a little short one today and get my thoughts together for speaking in the main meeting and really appreciate your prayers for uh, for that. Um, Christmas is such an awesome time to teach or preach or whatever because it's just awesome, awesome just to ponder God coming to us um, in the person of his son. It's just an amazing thing and the reason why he came is in the... Uh, that's just mind-blowing, and that's, I hope, to bring out some of those things in the, in the meeting. Um, so let's, let's just pray, and we'll see what we, we're going to talk about here this morning. Lord, we just thank you so much that, that you are full of grace, and that you want us so much to see that you are everything. Lord, thank you that you came to us when we could not go to you. And you came to us with joy. And you announced it with angels. Saying, do not be afraid. For we bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior which is Christ the Lord. Thank you, Father. Many, 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 many years planning, even before creation. But in an instant, suddenly, it was Christmas. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the grace that has come. For the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and the reality. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. I thought I'd share a, a few thoughts this morning about the, uh, the Lord's first miracle. I want to talk about something completely different in there, so I want to talk about something different in here, so I don't think I've already said something when I haven't said it yet out there. And uh, so I want to share some thoughts about his very first miracle. So if you would, let's turn to the Gospel of John. Jesus' very first miracle in the Gospel of John in chapter 2. I want to read the text and I want to talk a little bit about it. While you turn in there, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Think about this. If, if, we, uh, if we were God, if we were Jesus, what would be the first miracle we do or you do? What's that? Right. Not this. That's exactly right. I know. Pam, Pam, is, Pam said, I've been confused about this first miracle my whole life. It's true. I mean, it's like, it's, it, it, uh, I mean, if you were God, and you, the very first miracle says a lot, the very first one. I mean, he could, you know, blow up a mountain, you know, part of the Red Sea or something, you know, something, maybe raise the dead, which he did eventually. But, you know, the very first one, you know, kind of sets the tone for what he's going to do, right? I think it'd be fun to have like a, a skit one day and have, have these uh, different characters, like a religious guy and 
somebody else and somebody else and then have Jesus ask them, you know, which, what miracle do you think I should do first? And then each one give their opinion. And from their perspective, you know, like some military guy says, you know, just wipe out half the city or something, you know, show your power. Everybody has their own idea, you know, and then, and then this little kid goes, well, I, I, I'm getting married next week and I think it'd be cool if you made wine for my wedding. And then they all like mock him and say, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you would even say that, you know, and, and then have Jesus say, that's it, bud. So what does that say about God? What does that say about God? God, this miracle is awesome because it, it, it really, it shows his incredible, what's the word? He, he is so fun. Fun. Like a, like a child, like he loves to see, like you, like, like you love to see your children or your grandchildren, you know, laughing and playing. And that's how God is. He loves to see laughter and joy and, and um, celebration. He's a God of celebration. But this, this parable has so much meaning in it. Let's look at it. Not a parable, but this, this event. Let's look at it real quick. John chapter 2. Gospel of John chapter 2, verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Even the third days mean something, you know. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. If you do the math, what is that? Six times 30, 180 gallons. <laughs> You know, it's not that he just turned one glass into wine. I mean, 180 gallons. Jesus said to him, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter, head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor. But you have kept the good wine until now. In this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Awesome. Well, this, this passage is rich with, with so much truth. Nothing happens by accident in, in the Lord's ministry, and nothing is recorded in, in these Gospels by accident. I think that um, just the mention of the third day is a picture, of, is a mention of his resurrection, that he's going to accomplish something at his resurrection on the third day that this wedding is a picture of. And when you see the wedding, the, the the first thought you have is this is a wedding. This is a 
Um, this, weddings involve love and romance and, and uh, people, people being joined together. And that is really the heart of the whole gospel. That's the heart of it all. The reason he came was to take a bride, to join himself to us. You know, we, we've said this before that God is not really into saving us so we can serve him and just be a servant he has come to take a bride and he's not god is god's main goal is not to clean us up and fix us and to make us into his image that's not his main goal that's a byproduct of knowing him that we are changed but that's not his main goal his main goal his main heart typified in the wedding at Cana in this first miracle is that he wants simply to be with us. I know we've said that several times, but that he wants to be with us and he wants us to be with him. And if you lose sight of that heart of God, then you, if you were God and you chose the very first miracle, you probably wouldn't choose this miracle. But if you really knew his heart, his heart was like a, a bridegroom seeking a bride and that he desires to be with us, then you would say, that's the perfect miracle the very first miracle. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's really important to remember. I think that people tend to forget that um, in all of our teaching and preaching and, and study, and we lose sight sometimes of the simplicity of that he just wants to be with us. Right. Ephesians says that he cherishes and nourishes his bride, that he sees no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing in her, that he has totally cleansed her by his by the washing of the water of the word. And that phrase, the washing of the water of the word, does not mean the bride reads the Bible. And as a believer, we read the Bible and we get washed and cleansed and, until all the spots are gone. That's what's commonly taught in the church. Paul didn't, was not even thinking that. There was no Bible when Paul was around. I mean, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians. And then there were the Old Testament scriptures that the Gentiles didn't even have access to. And most of the Greeks couldn't even read. So it wasn't a matter of getting a Bible in in the hands of believers so they could wash themselves. No, in that letter to the Ephesians, he's simply saying that God has washed her with this water, the water of the word. What word? In that, the very next phrase, in that he gave himself for her. That word, that word, he gave himself for her. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That word is what washes us. The moment you believe that word, he gave himself for me. He gave himself for her. Then she's washed. And therefore, he sees her without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. And I've, I've heard revival teachers and preachers say that the, the church is not yet without spot, not yet without wrinkle. So we've got to get our act together or Jesus is not coming back. And that phrase, that scripture in Ephesians is not even talking about the second coming. It's not even referring to the second coming. It's talking about a bride and a bridegroom coming together. And in fact, in Ephesians 5, he goes on, Paul goes on and he says, I know this mystery is great, but as a man leaves his father and his mother and joins to his wife and becomes one, so is it with Christ in the church. They've become one. This is awesome. So this, this, um, this reality that we are truly in his eyes without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing, that he cherishes his bride and nourishes his bride is the heart of God. And that's why his very first miracle was at a wedding. And that's why he turned water into wine to show 
that, he, that his heart wants to celebrate his purpose, his eternal purpose. This is the eternal purpose of God. He seeks a bride. The son seeks a bride. The, the parable of the, the kingdom of heaven, one of the parables is that a, a son, um, a king, the king's son seeks a bride and has a wedding and invites all the people to the wedding. You know, it's awesome. So anyway, that's, that's why he chose this as the very first miracle because that's, it expresses the heart of God. Now you're looking deeper into this, this miracle. It's so cool because you have six stone water pots that the Jews used for the purpose of purification. That's written in there because the, the key phrase there is purification, the, free, the key word, purification. Jesus takes six stone water pots and turns them from water into wine because I believe it's a picture of six, is a picture of man, I believe. Man was made on the sixth day. It's a picture of man, mankind. Water speaks, I believe, of the natural life, water, natural life. The wine speaks of spiritual life or divine life, new life. And so what he did was he took six stone water pots, which were used for purification by the Jews. God signifying that the way he would purify us is not clean up the old man, not clean up the water, not fix the water, but transform the water into something new, a, a new, whole new thing, a new creation. So purification now in the new covenant does not come by cleaning the old up, but it comes by bringing a whole new in, wine. And wine, of course, uh, brings, speaks of joy and festivity and, and celebration. So it's an it's a, a act of creation, a new creation that brings this awesome, this event of joy. So he's telling us at the wedding that he's going to do something so awesome with man, that man is going to be transformed from natural to spiritual and it'll be done in a way where the work itself will bring purification because we'll pass through death and into life through judgment, his judgment on the cross. So through his judgment, we would actually become a new creation in his resurrection. Isn't that awesome? So that's one of the things. Now, going back a little bit, when the very beginning, when, when they ask, when they go to Jesus, Mary goes to Jesus and says, you know, they have no wine. First of all, I think it's cool that she would ask him because she knew he could do something about it. It's possible he'd already done some miracles that's not recorded. Um, this scripture does say this is the first of his signs publicly. But who knows what, he, what Mary saw little Jesus do. I, I love the, just to, my imagination run wild and, and, and see, you know, where he, like Mary's working really hard doing the, the laundry or something and Jesus feels bad for his mom and he just... <laughs> private miracles, not public yet. So he, she knew something about his abilities and powers in God. So she went to him and said, they ran out of wine. There's no wine. And then he said this, this odd statement. He said, he said, woman, and that's not a put down. That's how they referred to, uh, that's a very respectful term in, in those days. And he said, uh, he said, woman, uh, be just like I was saying, you know, mama, um, you know, why are you asking me this? It's, it's not my time. And he said that, and there's several theories about what he meant there. I think what he meant, my theory, my, think, my thinking is that he's, he's looking at this wedding and he's got a big smile on his face and he's just, he's enjoying himself in this celebration at this wedding. And he, he's transformed, I mean, he's, he's translated in his thinking and he sees his own wedding. 
He sees his own bride. He sees his own marriage. He sees his own, and, and he's kind of lost. And I think, he's, I th- I think he's, he sees, but he knows his time is not yet. That he has work to do before he can take a bride. So when the, his mother comes to him and says they have no wine, I think maybe the first thing he's thinking is that my time is, it's, it's not my wedding yet. This isn't my wedding. And, and he might have even said it with a smile. Because the moment he said that, she, didn't, she wasn't put off by it. She actually turned to the servants and said, he's about to do something. Whatever he, whatever he says. Whatever he says, do, do it. Isn't that cool? I mean, if, he, if, he, if she had taken his comment as a put off, like, like, don't bother me, you know, whatever, she would not have turned to the servants immediately and said, whatever he says, do, do it. He's about to do something. So cool. Because he probably said it with a smile. He probably said it with a smile like, mother, it's not my time yet. It's not my wedding. And he probably winked at her. <laughs> I got it. Like, I got this. And then so then she turned to the servants and said, whatever he says, do, do it. And then she went back and sat down with, in anticipation. So glad for the couple, the young couple, because it was a, it was a very embarrassing thing to run out of wine at, at a wedding. Very embarrassing to, for, the, for the bride and bridegroom. And so that's when he turned to the servants and said, fill these six stone water pots to the brim with water. And they did. And I also think it's cool that it says that the head waiter did not know where it came from, but the servants did. And that's like you and I. We're the servants or we're the sons and daughters of God. We know where this spirit comes from. We know where the life comes from. So as we serve it to other people, they may not know where it's coming from, but we do. And that's, that's, what, that's a picture of that, I think. And then I also think it's cool that the head waiter said, um, you know, the head waiter or the, or the, the person who, the connoisseur of wine, so to speak, uh, said most people serve poor wine, I mean, uh, the good wine first, and then after people are drunk, basically, is what he was saying. People are tipsy and they've drunk and freely, they've drank freely, and they're just, then they can taste poor wine and not tell the difference because they're already pretty tipsy from the wedding and celebration. And he says, But you have saved the best for last, which most people don't do because people can't really appreciate it because they're kind of like, you know, we, anything will do, you know. So the best for last. That, that once, uh, to me, that's also an indication that this is not just grape juice. This is, yeah. it's real wine. I mean, it's real wine because the head waiter, the connoisseur of wine says, I have had w- all kinds of wines. This, he, had, he went to the bridegroom and told him, he said, I don't know where you got this, but I've never, ever tasted wine like this. And, and I can't believe you're serving it now. I mean, most people serve this, would serve this first. This is incredible. <laughs> So it's so cool to see he not only just makes wine, he makes superior wine, he makes awesome wine, such that the, the wine connoisseur would say he's never had anything like this ever, which is just like God to make it the best. So in this, this whole story, you see the manifestation, the scripture says, of his glory. And imagine the, the bride and the bridegroom's um, joy when they realize where did we get 180 gallons of wine? You know, it's like we were out and we were desperate and didn't know what to do and now we've got 180 gallons of wine. Imagine the Lord's joy in being able to help them at that wedding. Um, 
Exactly. That's a very good point because, you know, the Lord is, he's, he's not just the God of, of just enough. He's not the God of just enough. He's just like the, the bread and the, the fish, the loaves and the fishes. Twelve baskets were left over after he multiplied and fed everyone. Twelve baskets left over. Um, he's, you know, the scripture says that uh, even his death on the tree, the prophet said that he has paid double for our sins. Double. He overpaid for our sins and giving himself for us. He's not the God of just enough, but the God of abundance. He lavished his grace upon us, the scripture says. I know I've said this before, but I, I don't like that, that statement that I hear people make sometimes that, that he's the God of the second chance. You know, he's the God of the second chance. Like, you know, like I said, I blew my second chance in the fourth grade. I mean, I don't need just two chances. I need unlimited chances. I need, I need 70 times seven forgiveness. I need everlasting mercy, you know, and we all do. So it's one of those things that, um, that you see that um, it's like, He's not the God of a second chance, but he's the God of infinite love and mercy. Yes. Yeah, Kathy. I was thinking about the number. I've always heard that eight is the number of completion in the Bible and seven is perfect. So I was thinking about 180. And one, one per- person, one person completed, number eight, the law, the six plots, filled them. And zero, there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I tell you, there's all kind of the numbers. God is into numbers. It's amazing how all these things mean something. The sixth day, man was made on the sixth day. Um, Russ? I have something to ponder that I've always, uh, as Pam has been overdosed on, been thinking about this experience, you know, and blowing her mind. I've thought about some things over the years, and I think it's very interesting that the Lord, He didn't create the miracle and put the wine inside of the vessels that they had been using to serve at the wedding. But here was the those earthen vessels that he set aside for the water for purification, and that water was used for external cleansing, whereas the miracle now, this treasure that's in that earthen vessel now, is the treasure that now is no longer something that is used for external cleansing, but now you drink it. Yeah. It actually gives you fulfillment. Yes. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Instead of outward washing the dirt off, but it's inward fulfillment. Yeah. You drink it in as opposed to just washing on the outside. That's awesome. That's really good. That's really good. So much awesome stuff in this event. It's deep. It's deep. It's deep. That's awesome. Right. And unable to be consumed. I mean, obviously, they were not able to consume. Right. Abundance of joy. Yeah. That's right. In, in fact, there's a verse in, in the prophets where it says, God has given wine to man to bring joy to his heart. There's actually a word in the, one of the prophets. You know, of course, you know, there's also verses that say, you know, don't overdo it, of course. But, but that's, that's, uh, that's actually one of the things. In fact, the very first thing that Noah made after the flood, the very first thing he made was wine. I mean, the very first thing, Noah, his name meaning rest. And so the very first thing he made was, was wine as a picture of, of God's joy and God's life. You know, it's awesome. So awesome. If that was aged for 2,000 years, what would it be worth today? Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, it would be priceless. Especially if it was made by the Lord himself. Can you imagine? 
Um, yeah, that's, that's, that'd be cool to do a fictional story about the, someone finding the bottles in a clay pot or something. <laughs> well, the, the wine in a clay pot or something. But um, also, you know, you bring up a good point, too. In the book of Esther, when Esther, when they had a very, if you ever get a chance to read the very first chapter of Esther, the king had a party. And the, the, the king said, okay, this is the, um, and oh yeah, and it said that every goblet was different. Every goblet was different. All the wine goblets were different, which speaks of our individual personalities and people. And the, the king said, I have only one rule at this party. One rule. You can have as much wine as you want and nobody can compel you to drink anything, but you can have as much as you want. And that's so cool. I love that. It's the first chapter of Esther. It's a picture of God saying, we're all different. We all look different, different goblets, different personalities, different giftings, different functions in the body, whatever. But he's saying to us, you can have as much as you want. You can have as much as you want. No one will compel you to drink, but you can have as much as you want. We have as much of of his life and his love and his joy as we want. Isn't that cool? So anyway, I just wanted to bring out those thoughts in this first, this first, um, this first sign or first miracle that the Lord did because it really shows, it sets the stage for his, his moving through and helping people see what the Father had come to do. Um, the Pharisees never really got it. You know, they really, they were constantly um, stuck in the law. They were stuck in this thinking that God was after, um, you know, behavior changes and obedience to law. And so blind to who God really was that they wouldn't even, that they would um, be angry with him for healing someone on the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus would have to say, you know, say that, you know, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And God's heart toward man is, um, is, what, is what this parable or this event, I think, talks about. I'm battling a cold, sorry for the, all the sniffling. Anyway, I um, thought I'd just do, do a short one this morning and get some thoughts together for, uh, for this morning and uh, hope that was a blessing to you. It's so cool the, just, to, just to see God's heart. What, I, what I'm hoping to do out there is, is share some thoughts about just, you know, how, how awesome it is that God came to us and how he'd been planning this from before creation and that even creation itself spoke of his coming and how he made us and how he made the world. It was all foreshadowing his coming as uh, John says that all things were made by him and all things that came into being were came into being through him and not anything that came into being did come into being without him. It was you know, awesome. And Hebrews talks about that he made all that is visible, the indivisible made the visible. Romans talks about the invisible things of God are seen by the things that have been made. And I just want to share some thoughts about that and, and also the, the main reason why he came. Because, you know, we talk about the joy of Christmas and we, we love Christmas and we wish we had Christmas year-round. And we can have Christmas year-round. That's what's so awesome because... What happened at Christmas, what we celebrate at Christmas is this awesome truth that once it's seen in all of its simplicity, it's, it's, uh, it's everything. And that's this, that he came, 
He came to take away the sin of the world. That's why the angel said, we bring you good news. Peace. We were enemies. We were enemies of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We were enemies. There was a war between God and men because of sin. He has come and announced peace. The war is ended. The prophets say, tell them, tell my people the war is ended. Their, their warfare is over. Peace. Peace with God. Peace with God. God himself has taken our judgment for, for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why it's such joyful. That's why he says, for God is at peace with men. That God desires to dwell with men whom he is pleased with. What? Pleased with? How can he be pleased with us? How can he say peace when we are his enemy because of our sin? How can he say that? How can this be? Go, fear not. You'll find him in a manger wrapped in cloths. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Awesome. That's the Christmas we can live with every day and every single day because he literally took it off the planet. He removed sin in a way that we can't even fathom so that God could join himself with us and union with him, us in the Christ, the Christ in us, the Christ in the Father, the Father in the Christ. The Messiah has done it. He has done it. He has done it. Daniel 9 talks about he, when he comes, he shall make an end of sin. He shall finish the transgression. He shall make reconciliation for all iniquity. He shall bring in everlasting righteousness in union with himself. That bride without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. Joined to him in a spiritual, miraculous way that, that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to us. Because we still, we still sin in these bodies, and we still stumble. And we're still afraid sometimes of our sins and our flesh and all these things that the enemy throws at us and religion throws at us. But the truth will set us free that he took sin away. Where there is no law, sin is no longer counted. Where there is no law, there's no transgression. What, what manner of love is this? For you are no longer under law, the scripture says, but under grace. For the law came by Moses, was given by Moses, but grace and the reality came by Jesus. And we beheld his glory full of grace. And we, received, we have received grace for grace. He lavished his grace upon us, Ephesians says, that in the ages to come, he might show his loving kindness toward us in Christ. Awesome. This is what catapults us into the other realm. That other realm that opened up to those shepherds briefly when they, when they spoke. So, yeah, yeah sure. They need to use this, this mic, so we'll go ahead and wrap it up. But um, thanks for your prayers. And uh, I know the Spirit of God will help me communicate. Awesome news. Good news. And ponder about this first miracle, this wedding at Cana. It's so awesome, so beautiful. It shows the heart of God. Lord, thank you so much for helping us speak and see these things. Thank you that you did pull the veil back and showed us angels upon angels upon angels singing to those shepherds this awesome reality God was coming 
God was coming. Don't be afraid. Emmanuel is among you. He's coming. And he's coming with a mission. He's coming with purpose. He's coming to take a bride. And he's coming to remove anything and everything that will separate him from that bride forever. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Awesome. Amen. James.